Amen. Will you pray with me? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. When I first talked to our larger staff here at Christ United about doing a two-week sermon series on racism, we all agreed that it was a really important topic and we wanted to give it due diligence. That being said, as I have prepared and had conversations and tried to come up with some action plans, two weeks is not enough time to cover everything we need to know about the manifestations of racism and how we can actively be a part of undoing these systems that are in place. So if you're sitting here and find yourself moved and passionate, please don't hesitate to talk to me or someone else on staff as we work to create meaningful next steps so that we can begin the work of creating the kingdom of God here on earth. In the Christian world, specifically those churches that follow the lectionary, or like Meredith called it, the big church, today is recognized as Trinity Sunday. It's the Sunday where we recognize that God is three in one and how each of these aspects of God are crucial to how we understand and how we meet God in our own lives and out in the world. When we talk about things like following the lectionary, in more traditional denominations, this means that on a Sunday morning at church, they would get up and read four different scripture readings. They would have an Old Testament reading, a psalm, a gospel reading, and then an additional reading from the New Testament. Because today is Trinity Sunday, I was anxious to read all four of our readings for today to see if one of them could lend itself to our series on racism. I always prefer to follow the lectionary because it is an important way of connecting us with a bigger church, and I love when it's already super relevant to our current sermon series or themes. And as I read the New Testament scripture reading for today, I felt the Holy Spirit moving. Y'all, our scripture reading from the lectionary could not fit any better with our series on racism. And it also gives us this opportunity to talk about the Trinity, to talk about Trinity Sunday. I love when the Holy Spirit shows up in ways that I can't control, when the Holy Spirit fills in those gaps. To follow the lectionary, we will read from the letter to the church at Rome, Romans. Romans was written by Paul, and as you probably know, Paul wrote a lot of different letters found in the New Testament. And there are some letters that are called disputed that people really aren't sure that Paul actually wrote them. But even in that sense, those letters were written under the pseudonym of Paul. Paul did not know Jesus in real life, in person. He didn't come to believe in Jesus' teachings until much later after Jesus' resurrection. Instead, what Paul comes to believe and know and teach others are things he himself learned through the Hebrew scriptures and what he came to know from the disciples' teachings 
to the larger group of people. Paul created his own interpretation of Jesus' teachings in light of the Hebrew scriptures. We, as Christians, believe that Paul's teachings in these letters were inspired by God. This gives us a little bit of context of the author of the letter we are going to read today. Now let's talk about the audience of the letter. The church at Rome consisted of people who were of the Jewish faith and people who were Gentiles. Because of their different backgrounds and their different cultural beliefs, they find themselves constantly clashing, clashing against questions of doctrine and practices. And even though Paul has never actually been to Rome when he writes this letter, and he hasn't met most of the believers in Rome, he writes this letter to clear up these confusions, to clear up these disputes that they find themselves facing. He strives to bring unity within this church. In our specific passage today, Paul is encouraging the Roman church to actively participate in the work of salvation and to define the nature of their church. Okay, now that you got a little history lesson, let's dive in. We're gonna be in Romans, of course, the eighth chapter, and we're gonna read verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. But if you put to death the actions of the body with the spirit, you will live. All who are led by God's spirit are God's sons and daughters. You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to lead you back again into fear, but you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as his children. With this same spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. But if we are children, we are also heirs. We are God's heirs and fellow heirs with Christ if we really suffer with him so that we can also be glorified with him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let the church say, thanks be to God. We see unity on a few different fronts here in this passage. The first display of unity that we see are the identities of God. We see God written in terms of the spirit, we see God written in terms of creator or father. And then, of course, we see God talked about as Christ. While we recognize these three separate understandings of God as Trinitarians, we also understand the unity or that oneness of God. On Trinity Sunday, it's important for us to take note of this and to recognize the complexities of the nature of God. It's an important understanding Paul hopes to pass along to the church at Rome. The other vision we see here, the vision of unity from this passage, is the concept that we are all children of God. We've talked a lot in this series and our last series, Faith Matters, about being created in the likeness of God. 
Specifically, last week, we talked about how systems of racism feed into the lie that some of us are made in God's image and others aren't, or that some of us are better and some of us are worse, or some of us are worthy and others are unworthy. Paul writes that the church at Rome is full of children who are all adopted into the family. Paul places an emphasis on that unity. For us to fully understand what Paul means here about adoption, we have to consider what adoption looked like in the time this was written, because it didn't look like it looks like today. In the Jewish culture, if a father of the family died, then the brother would naturally become the head of his household. If there wasn't a brother, it fell to the grandfather or the male cousin or the uncle. Because of this cultural practice for Jewish families, adoption wasn't really a relevant thing for them. It wasn't something that they needed a legal process or needed an official system for. It was assumed. It just happened. Because of this, we're led to believe that what Paul is talking about here is adoption in the context of the Roman culture. Unfortunately, in Roman culture during this time, children were often abandoned or sold into slavery for a number of different reasons. Having heirs was still super important, though. So couples who were unable to have biological children were often anxious to adopt. Dr. Johnson, a New Testament professor, shares this. Under Roman law, as with our own, adopted children had the same legal status and inheritance rights as biological children. This demonstrates to the church at Rome that even though that some of them are Gentiles and some of, this are, some of them are Jewish, they're united together as children of God. They're adopted so that they all have the same exact rights as one another. Despite their points of differences or their arguments, they're all claimed equally. This is an important context for us to take note of today. The readers of this letter understand what Paul means when he writes that they're all part of one family. The question for us today is, do we believe this? Do we believe we are beloved, that we are equal children of God? And do the systems around us play into our belief? Tomorrow marks 100 years since the Tulsa Race Massacre. Beginning on May 31st in 1921, the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma was destroyed by mobs of white people. This area of Tulsa was known as the Black Wall Street. It's believed that up to 300 people were killed and thousands were left homeless and without their businesses. The catalyst to this massacre was similar, actually, to the plot of To Kill a Mockingbird, where a black man is accused of abusing a white woman. And that's what that was, 
a catalyst to this community, a catalyst that spurred the destruction of a huge, thriving black community that's still suffering from the ramifications of this horrific event. A hundred years later, and the aftermath still stings. There are going to be a lot of documentaries in the coming year on this massacre. Acts of oppression linger on, even when society seems to have moved on and changed. Lingering systems still exist, and they oppress. Today, along with Memorial Day, we also remember the victims of the massacre, and we're challenged to do better. What leads to oppression and systems of racism? There are a number of factors. If we all sat down together and we're doing this work together, I bet we could come up with lists of different things that lead to this. But as I read our scripture reading from Paul today, one factor he mentioned stands out to me. Paul wrote to the Romans that they were being tempted to live by their own selfishness. Let's reread verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it isn't an obligation to ourselves to live our lives on the basis of selfishness. If you live on the basis of selfishness, you are going to die. But if you put to death the actions of the body with the spirit, you will live. Selfishness. How are each of us affected by selfishness? There's a quote I've seen on social media that says something like this. No one thinks about you as much as you think about you. And when I read that, when I say it out loud, it kind of resonates. We do think about ourselves a lot. It's the lens in which we see the entire world through our own perspective, driven by our own experiences. I assume this is the core of the disagreement with the church at Rome too. They thought of themselves first. They thought of what their understanding of what a body of believers should look like. And they were a divided people because they wanted what was best for them, what they were comfortable with, what they had come to believe. Selfishness is a hard thing to combat. It was probably hard for that church at Rome. It's certainly hard for us today. And as I've worked to familiarize myself with racism in the world, I come across a lot of different arguments and perspectives some of which are people who say, you know, I was able to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Why can't you? Or, I don't see color, I see people. Both of these things are true for that person saying it, but they both focus on that person. They don't come from another person's perspective. Antidotes like this put the perspective on ourselves and not on the experiences of others. 
Yes, some people have been able to rise out of their situation, but that doesn't mean that situation is translatable for everyone. And skin color does exist. People are judged by it. We do notice physical attributes of one another. We are wired to think about me, 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 and to look at the world through our own personal lens. Paul challenges the church at Rome to set aside their selfishness, to set aside that me, me, me inclinations, and instead to consider how together they function to better the world as the body of Christ. Paul doesn't tell them to stop being themselves or to betray their own passions and beliefs and identities. Instead, they're challenged to begin to think about others, to think of themselves as more than just a single individual piece, but to look at the entire puzzle. And yet, as humans, we have such a strong pull to things that separate us from one another. We want to know who's in and who's out. We want to determine our worth by wealth or by knowledge or by social standing. And sometimes people's worth is determined by the color of their skin. Whether we partake in it or not, it happens and it's a reality for many of our brothers and sisters. Last week, we were challenged to hear the histories and stories of people of color, to be open to listening and holding safe spaces for someone else's voice. Today, our challenge is to be moved, to be moved by our identities as a body of Christ, as children of God, to care for one another deeply. And we can't just sit back and hope and pray that it happens. We can't be tempted to be selfish and think, you know, this really isn't relevant to my life. It's not an issue for me. Archbishop Desmond Tutu says, my humanity is bound up in yours, for we can only be human together. We are different precisely in order to realize our need for one another. We are different. We have different stories. We have different experiences. We have different views. And still, God adopts us. Still, God welcomes us in to God's family. Paul believes the believers in Rome can bridge their differences, that they can learn from one another, that they can unite in their identities as adopted children of the triune God, that through a God as creator, redeemer, and sustainer, they can live into their callings as the body of Christ, that they can be moved to share the gospel with the world, that they can call out the systems that claim one group of people is better than another. Can't we, too, be moved?
Can't we recognize the brokenness and work to do better? Can't we call out the selfishness that created these systems and oppression that continue to hurt our brothers and sisters? A few weeks back, Fortune magazine reported that many American companies have yet to follow through on their financial commitments to racial equity. Corporations have increasingly pledged financial support for black communities since the murder of George Floyd last summer. But a new study finds that much of the funding has yet to materialize. American companies pledged $50 billion toward racial equity following Floyd's murder. According to a study by Creative Investment Research, since then, only $250 million has actually been spent or committed to a specific initiative, according to an analysis by the consulting firm. $50 billion pledged, $250 million given. I hope that more money materializes. I hope that these companies will hold up their promises to these communities suffering injustice. In the meantime, how do we, the people sitting here in this church space, how do we act? In what ways do we need to be moved into action? I don't have a billion dollars, but golly, I sure can listen. I sure can speak up. I sure can set aside a little piece of me for someone else? How do we take notice of the selfishness around us and work to give everyone a voice? How do we make our churches, our safe spaces, not just places where we can talk about hard things, but where we can actually act and make the world a better place? Here in our congregation, we have a number of great ministries that are doing such, such great work out in the community. I know you all are doing your own part to act like Christ out in the world. I applaud that, I recognize that. And still, we can always find new ways. We can find new ways to truly be the body of Christ out in the world. May we continue to be stirred by the Holy Spirit May we continue to take notice of our brothers and sisters and find a way to make deep, lasting change. Change that isn't based on ourselves, but is instead rooted in the belief that we are all children of God. We are all equal heirs. Our humanity is bound up in one another, for we can only be human together. We are beloved children of God, each of us, all over the world and for all time. May we live as those beloved children today and every day. Amen.